I, I hope it strikes you as a little strange that we're sitting here tonight, right? This is kind of bizarre that we come together every year on this Friday night um, to celebrate, to remember, to commemorate the brutal, horrific, bloody, awful death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth on a Roman tree. Maybe it doesn't strike us as bizarre because we say things uh, a lot. We, we say, um, Jesus died for my sins, or we, we say with the writers of Scripture, they crucified him. And we don't feel the, uh, the punch in the gut, as it were, that they would have felt when we would talk about crucifixion. I mean, to think of how strange this is. Maybe one of the reasons is, is that it's no longer become strange to us, right? It's become very normal. Many of you right now, and there's nothing wrong with this, by the way. I just want to make sure you hear when I say this. Many of you right now are wearing a cross around your neck. Uh, if I go to your houses, I imagine I might see some crosses on the wall. Some of you have a cross tattooed on your body. Do you understand how odd that is? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying, do you, do you, I mean, maybe one way we can make and feel the oddness of this is what if, what if you, you walked up to somebody and there was an electric chair around their neck? Or, or, or we, we watched celebrations worldwide and what they did was they elevated an electric chair and walked it through the streets and as people saw it and it came by, they would bow their heads in reverence as this came by. I mean, this is how strange this moment is. And so it's very difficult to sort of get back into the skin, into the mind, into the imagination of a first century Jew when we think about them saying they crucified him. Or think about if I were to say to most Westerners, most Americans, if I were to say, tell me something that you might know about the crucifixion. They would probably say, well, maybe I don't know much, but I know that has something to do with some guy named Jesus who lived a few thousand years ago or something like that, right? We don't talk that way about any other death in human history. If I said, tell me about the assassination." You'd say, which one, right? Is it JFK, MLK, RFK? Who, who are we talking about? Because there's something utterly unique about Jesus' suffering, about his suffering on a cross. And, and suffering and, and death and, and crucifixion is just so foreign to us. Thousands of people would have been crucified by Rome, by Rome and the soldiers and before them the Assyrians. But, but we're very removed from that. See, no other religion, there is not a religion out there that talks about a suffering God or, or even worse, a God who dies to save his followers, right? In fact, most religions in the world, all religions but Christianity, want to distance themselves from divine suffering. So, so if, if, you know, Islam rejects the, the brutal death of Jesus because they would say there's no way God would do that to his son. You ever looked at a, a, a Buddha, whether large or small? And what are you going to see? You're going to see a, a fat man, legs crossed, arms crossed, maybe reclining. Some are laughing, some are smiling, some just sort of, sort of have this neutral expression on their face as though they are immune to pain and suffering. I love what John Stott says about this. 
He says, I've entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, but each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross. Christ suffered unimaginably. Like, crucifixion was designed to be terribly slow, horribly painful, and, and utterly degrading. Like, we, we have no modern reference for crucifixion. I imagine if cameras were at Calvary, there is not a social media site that would let you put that up. There isn't a news site that would play it. You haven't seen anything like it. Even if you were one of these that, that went onto the internet to try and find the beheadings that ISIS did in, in, in the Middle East in the last several years. Nothing is like it. And we're so removed from death. But I mean, most of us will not even see our loved ones die. And if we do, we will see them die. We won't see them tortured to death. We'll see them die quietly, peacefully. They slept into eternity. Not Jesus. They crucified him. So do you see how difficult it is for us to sort of enter into the first century imagination and feel what this might have felt like? Now look at this is all the early, the, the, the writers of scripture tell us. They just say he crucified him. So maybe some of you think, because that means we really shouldn't talk about crucifixion. And let me just tell you ahead of time, I'm not going to go into gory detail here. I'm really not. But I want to just simply say this. One of the reasons they just said they crucified him and didn't go into all the details is because they all knew what it looked like. They'd heard the horrific screams. They'd seen the battered bodies. They'd watched somebody die a slow, horrific death on a tree. So let me just say this. It was diabolically designed to cause the most, the maximum physical pain, let's call it social pain and psychological pain. Physical pain, of course. You are pinned to a cross by your wrists, by your feet, and the searing pain of just those nails in you. First, you were scourged, the flesh taken from your back. You're on a wooden cross. Every time you move on that cross, slivers are entering your back. In other words, there is not a position on the cross. You can never, ever get even the remotest amount of comfort. It's utterly, horribly, physically painful. It's socially painful. We, we have these sort of antiseptic pictures that we, we don't dare actually show what it would have looked like for Jesus to hang on a cross. So we have these sort of serene moments, legs crossed, muscular arms, him outstretched. Maybe his face is slightly saddened, but he's covered in a loincloth, right? These men would have been stripped bare, naked, down at street level. People mocking them, spitting them, put in such a place that maximum numbers of people would walk by. You understand, this was reserved for the scum of the earth. 
You didn't crucify Roman citizens. You didn't crucify high-standing people. You crucified people who were the lowest of the low. And so when people walk by, they just assume this person is off-scouring. This person is scum. This person is horrific. Now, let your imagination run wild. What kind of things would you say if you wanted to humiliate a naked man on a cross? And that's probably what he heard. It was psychologically painful. Because ultimately, the victim became his own executioner. He, he, he would finally just have to give up. His lungs would fill with fluid and he would suffocate under his own body weight. And we call this Good Friday. Does that strike you as odd? Because yet the church for centuries now has held this tension that said the crucifixion is in the same moment the worst crime in human history and the greatest event in human history. So it really begs the question, why? Why is Good Friday good? Well, why is this a day that we'd come and commemorate? Why, why is this something that Paul will say, I'll boast of nothing except Christ and Christ alone, what we just said? Let me, let me give you five reasons and let us think about this. And by the way, this is five of maybe a hundred because the Bible is replete with why today is a good day. And the first thing is simply this, that Christ died the death you should have died. Now let me walk you through this. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What's sin? Sin is both an enemy, it is both a captor, it is both a master over us, but it's also a power within us and it's something we do and we reject God and we live our lives without reference to him and we do what we're not. He commands us to do certain things, we don't do them. He tells us to not do certain things, we do them. We reject his rule over our life. Now look at some of us, we acknowledge him a few times a year, maybe one time a week, maybe we offer up a prayer, maybe we go to church, maybe we look at our Bible, but the rest of the time we live our lives for ourselves. And the Bible says that's sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one is good. Not even one. You say, well, then what happens? Well, the death, the, the, the price of that sin is death. The wage of sin is death. So there's a terrible price to pay. And I'm not talking about, we all people die. We're all going to die, aren't we? Yes, but we're not talking about that. Jesus says, don't just fear him who can kill the body. Fear him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. There's a second death. You say, well, okay, well, but what if my good outweighs my bad and I can live a life where there, the, the scales tip in my favor? You understand there, there's no scales. You understand there's no such thing as that. James is going to say this. He's going to say, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So you can stack up all your goodness. You can be the best father, the best mother, the best husband, wife, neighbor, worker, whatever. You can be absolutely moral. But if you fail one time, if there's one speck on that side of the scale, if there are scales, you fail. You're accountable for all of it. 
What if you could manage to live a perfectly moral life? Paul's going to say in Romans 14, here's the checkmate. Anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. You see what happens here? Meaning, if the impulse for my goodness doesn't come from my faith in Christ, it's sin. I'm done. This is the Bible's way of going, checkmate, you got no way out. There's nothing. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. So then, where's the good news? The good news is Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's why it's a good Friday. Because Christ died the death we should have died. He died in my place, in your place, for our sin. That's good. The second thing is, is he... He lived the life we should have lived. And let me just read to you. I want to just read to you from Mark. Mark's account of when Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says in Mark chapter 15 verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour. Jesus cried with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling on Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw it in this way, he breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, I just said to you, one of the reasons this is a good day is because Christ lived the life that I should have lived. And here you see on the cross, Jesus living that life until to the moment of not one second before did he quit until his dying breath. And he says, my God, my God, in the midst of all this suffering, in the midst of all this pain, there's still, this is just a cry of intimacy. God, you're still my God. God, I still believe I have not given up. He lived a perfect life all the way until the end. He took my punishment that I deserved and he lived for me so that now Paul's going to say, he, this is amazing. He who knew no sin became sin. I don't even know what that means. He became sin for us that in him we might have the righteousness of God. He died the death I should have died. He lived the life I should have lived. Now I'm forgiven. Now the debt has been paid. And now I'm righteous in God's eyes. Number three, because Christ was forsaken so we don't have to be. Did you hear what he said? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this is cry from the cross. This is the most important, most terrible question ever asked. Why God? Why would you do this to your son? Why would you kill him in this way? Why would he be tortured in this way? Why are you allowing this to happen? You know what the answer is? For you. For me, for us. 
Robert Murray McShane, he was a pastor, and he said from the broken bread, he's talking about communion now, but what's happening in communion, from the broken bread, the poured out wine seems to rise to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is, it's me, for me. He says, I don't want to forsake you. I'm, I, so Jesus can now come along when he's about to ascend into heaven and say, okay, guys, I'm leaving you, and I will, but I will, I'm going to go and ascend to my Father, but I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you because I've assured you of that with my own blood. I will never, nothing, God will never turn his back on you ever. Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus... It doesn't matter what valley you're in right now. You can never say, I'm in a God-forsaken place because he'll never leave you. He will never forsake you and the cross proves it. It's a good Friday. Number four, because now we have access to God. Let me read this to you again because I want to make sure you hear what's happening to you. In in Mark chapter 15, listen to this. Some bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling on Elijah. And someone ran, filled a a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come. Take him down. (coughs) Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If I were to take you back to Genesis chapter 1 and we began to read about Adam and Eve, here's what you'd find, that Adam and Eve, when God created them, had perfect fellowship with God. They walked with him in the cool of the day. They had direct access to God. What happens if you know the story? They sin. They reject God's rule. They decided we're going to live autonomously of God. We don't need God's rule over life. We'll believe the serpent. God God punishes them, right? That's what we call the fall. God kicks them out of the garden. What does he do? He puts a flaming sword in front of the entrance of the garden so that they can't come in. Because if they come in, that's where his presence is and they'll die. Now fast forward and we're now in, out in the wilderness and God tells Moses, I want you to build this tabernacle and it's going to be a tent and, and when you walk in, you'll, you'll be in this place called the holy place and this is where all the items for worship are but there's going to be a curtain and behind that curtain is the most holy place and this is where my presence will be, Moses. And the high priest must make a sacrifice to get through that curtain once a year. And if you go to Leviticus and you read about the the sewing and the weaving of that curtain, what's on the curtain? Fruit. It's a picture of Eden. It's a picture of that time when behind that veil there was direct access to God. And what happens when Jesus dies? Jesus dies. There's the sacrifice. The veil, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. God tears it because of the sacrifice of Christ. He accepts that sacrifice once for all. So now the writer of Hebrews will say now by faith, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then now you can come boldly before the throne of grace in your time of need. So now because of the sacrifice, because of Christ on the cross, because of his death, it's a good Friday. Because if you've put your faith in Jesus, you have direct access to God. And finally, because now salvation is available to everyone. Listen to Mark again. 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is amazing. Think about the order of what just happened. It's after the curtain tears that we hear the confession. It's this man seeing Jesus on the cross dying that he realizes he is the son of God. This confession comes from a rebel. It comes from a sinner. It comes from an impure Gentile. It comes from a murderer. It comes from a man who's undeserving, we might say. It comes from somebody who stands in for all of us. So now we can say anyone can come. Anyone can now enter in. This impure Gentile gets Jesus. He finally gets it seeing him on the cross. Where justice and mercy meet. Where his kingship and his servanthood are shown in its most, most of its glory. Right there. We, we see all of that in Jesus on the cross. So here's this man. This centurion. This is Mark's way of saying, man, I'm inviting you. That you see him in this way, breathing his last, and that you would confess with this centurion that truly this man is the Son of God. Is this a good Friday for you? If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it is. If you haven't, it can be. And I want to just invite you to do that. Today can be the first good Friday you've ever had, literally. It's the day that Jesus, the day when he'll take your sin and you'll get his goodness. It's the day where he gets forsaken so you'll never be. It's the day where you run boldly to the throne of grace because he's made a way for you. It's a day where salvation is for everyone, even for you. Have you put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. It's so odd to stand up here and be celebrating on the one hand the death of Jesus Christ and yet God when we see scripture and we understand what was accomplished Lord we're in awe and we thank you for the cross. We thank you Jesus for what you accomplished and Father I pray that right now in this room through the weakness of what has been preached, the weakness of this message, it's foolish. But to those who are being saved, it's, it's the wisdom, it's the knowledge of God. I pray in this moment, there might be people, even in this room, maybe the last time they heard a preacher preach, maybe the last time they stepped into a church was, was a year ago at Good Friday or a year ago Easter, it doesn't matter. But tonight, Lord, can be the first Good Friday they've ever had. <laughs> So I pray they put their hope, they put their faith, they put their trust in Jesus Christ. And then for the rest of us, God, even though this is a a night of solemn assembly, this is a night where we come together to remember that our sin put Jesus on the cross, it's a night to glory in that cross because of all you've accomplished for us. And so we thank you and we praise you for it. We love you, Jesus. We stand in awe of the cross and all you've accomplished. And I pray, God, the reality of that would penetrate our hearts. Bring us hope. Bring us help. Bring us an assurance that we might see the love of God on full display for his people. 
And we ask all this in Jesus' name.